This is Solomon speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And these are the words that he pens. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Three points on your outline this morning would encourage you to take notes. I think you'll listen better if you do. Just want to let you know that we'll be a little bit heavier on point one. We'll be brief on point two and three this morning. Write this down if you're taking notes. When we strive after selfish gain, we will often trample over others. When our heart is set upon, when our intentions are fixed upon gaining selfish gain, acquiring selfish gain, we will oftentimes trample over others to get it. Look back at your Bible there. Find verse 1, specifically A, the first phrase there. Solomon says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Solomon is picking back up a subject that he began last week in our study of verses 16 through 22 of chapter 3. In verse 16, if you've got your Bible there just laying on your lap, just glance back at chapter 3, find verse 16. Because this is what Solomon's picking back up on here in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Look there in verse 16, Solomon said, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. And then Solomon begins, let your eyes fall back down to chapter 4, verse 1. Solomon says here, again I saw. Again I saw it. As Solomon observed life under the sun, he became an eyewitness to life's oppressions, the difficulties and the hardships of life. What does Solomon see as he looks? Well, he sees injustice, he sees evil, he sees suffering, he sees people that are downtrodden, he sees abused people and people that are taken advantage of. And we should note here that it doesn't appear as though Solomon has one circumstance in mind. He seems to just be speaking about life in general. Just life in general. We see the oppression that takes place under the sun. In other words, life under the sun as a result of the fall is characterized by people devouring their neighbor instead of loving their neighbor. That's what sin does. When I love me principally, I won't love you as I ought. And really, more importantly, we'll talk about this in just a few moments, when I don't love God as I ought, I certainly won't love you as I ought. Solomon sees all this injustice under the sun. He sees all this oppression under the sun. I mean, this world is a place of striving after gain. You see that? You see it on the news, uh, you see it in the business world around you, you see it in the, bro- in the brokenness and the corruption that, that exists in institutions around you, you see it on magazine uh, uh, covers, everywhere you go, 
You see that the world is a place of striving after gain. The world is a place where every man is for himself. It's dog-eat-dog, survival of the fittest, get what you can while you can, look out for number one. The The world is a place where if someone loses, it's not going to be me. It's the world we live in. It's the world we live in. Human beings in rebellion against God are generally careless of their neighbor. They're out for gain. And in their desperate attempts to accumulate for themselves, they will happily kick and tramp over others to get what it is that they think will make them happy. Oppression is visible in every area of life. It's, it's visible in business, it's visible in marriage, it's visible in the family unit, it's visible in every relationship, it's visible in the culture, and it has even historically been visible in the church. Oppression can be seen everywhere and in innumerable facets. The word oppression here is the Hebrew word ashukim, It literally means to press against, maybe better, to crush. To treat others with unjust harshness, to defraud, to extort, or to torment someone else. It just means to treat someone else with a complete lack of sympathy, empathy, and love. The oppression spoken of here. It's probably primarily the way the powerful seem to exploit the weak to their own advantage. Matter of fact, Solomon, in just a few chapters uh, forward, will be there when we get to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Solomon says this. He actually defines oppressions as the use of authority or power to the detriment or to the hurt of others. Solomon says this. He says, All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. That's the definition of oppression. When we use our authority in such a way that it is intentionally hurtful to another person, it's oppressive, it's weighty, it's like wearing a lead blanket for that individual. This isn't the the grossest form of sin in the world. It's just a form of sin in the world. All sin is gross and heinous before the eyes of him to whom we must give account, the writer of Hebrews tells us. And we'll all give account one day for our hearts, for our thoughts, for our intentions, for our motivations, for our actions. He sees it all. He sees it all. Solomon saw rulers who were thirsty for power. I mean, just, just think for a minute here. I mean, Solomon himself was born into royalty. He was, at the time, the most powerful human being on the face of the planet. But even in his high and lofty position, Solomon, as he surveyed, as he looked around him, saw other rulers thirsty for power. He saw landowners greedy for wealth and merchants who took advantage of individuals. The list is endless and the crimes are countless that would fall under the category of oppressions. Wherever there is power mixed with sinfulness in the human heart, the potential that that power is abused is likely. Let me just rewind that sentence for a second here. Wherever there is power or authority 
mixed with the sinfulness that resides, that is resident, the resident evil of the human heart, there is the potential that that very power will be abused. Will be abused. Be used improperly, incorrectly, in a harsh or domineering or heavy-handed or oppressive nature. It's the result of sin. That's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not the way God intended things to be before the fall in Genesis chapter 3. God intended that man would love his neighbor. That was when man was in perfect union and harmony with his father. So that he could be in perfect harmony and union with his brother. But sin changed all that. Sin marred our ability to love our brother and sister, to love our neighbor as we ought. And so because we love ourselves and because we have that predisposition, all the connected wiringness in our heart, we tend to treat others harshly for our own gain. If there's something in front of me that I want desperately enough, then I will climb over, I'll trample over other people to get it. Whether that's my wife or my children or my coworkers or my next door neighbor, I'll climb over them to get what I want because I don't love them as I ought, which is a symptom of a greater disease, not loving God as I ought. It's resident in all of our hearts. Consider the game of sorry here for just a second. Perhaps you've played this game. All we have at the Coer household is the Disney edition. It's the game of sorry here. I mean, the whole object of this game is to advance around the board by knocking other people off. Like, you don't even need to read the instructions to excel at the game of sorry. It's really quite simple. You move forward by moving other people backward. That's the whole object of the game. That's the whole object of the game. To get to the top, you trample over others. The way up is to put others down. Sorry is a strange name, as a matter of fact, because you're anything but sorry when you do it. Right? You're you're happy, you're elated, you're ecstatic, you're overjoyed. We oftentimes treat other people like a living game of sorry. The Bible says a lot about oppression. Let me just summarize some of the categories for you. If you were to, uh, to thumb through a concordance uh, or to use something like BibleGateway.com or Blue Letter Bible, if you don't have a physical copy of a concordance, but you just did a word search on oppression, let me give you some of the categories uh, that you would come up with here. In the Bible, oppression includes things like cheating one another's uh, neighbor, stealing or defrauding from another, It's seen in the making of unjust gain or uh, profiting from unjust loans. It's seen in the abuse of power, financial or otherwise, perpetrated by those who are, who are, uh, are powerful against those who are poor and needy and vulnerable. The orphans, the strangers, the widows. The Bible speaks about oppression of people by a king. Oppression of a servant by his master, oppression of the poor by the affluent, oppression of the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, oppression by charging exorbitantly high interest, or 
or by even defrauding the scales, right? I just manipulate the scales to my own advantage. The Bible calls that oppression, the use of corrupt weights and measures. And the list goes on and on and on. I mean, this is just the, the beginning here of, of some of the categories that the Bible uh, uses to define oppression. I came across a verse this week in my study that, that uh, was particularly challenging to me. Uh, this is Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31. You can maybe write it there in the margin, go back and look at it later. Solomon, presumably speaking here in Proverbs chapter 14, he says this, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Whoever oppresses a poor man, whoever takes advantage of a poor man, whoever seeks to gain at the expense of a poor man, do you know what he does? He doesn't just take advantage of the poor man. More importantly than that, he insults, which the original Hebrew word, therefore, insults, is shows contempt for his maker. Every time I crawl over someone else, be it my wife, my coworkers, my children, my neighbor, business uh, uh, relationships, whoever it is, wherever it is, any time I trample over others, not only am I trampling over others, but I am showing contempt for their maker. Well, that brings us to a whole new playing field. Does it not? When we treat other people poorly for our own gain, we demonstrate that we care very little for the person, but also that we care very little for that person's maker. We see human exploitation and oppression in almost every way possible throughout human history was thinking about the Jewish people. The Jewish people certainly knew about oppression from their bondage in Egypt. Jot this down. You can go back and check it out later. Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. Just listen here. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, said to his people, that's to the Egyptian people, Behold, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, they're too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if a war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, or as a result of this thinking, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and in brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as bondservants. I mean, this is the heavy-handed, I'm gaining at the expense of another person. Think about the Holocaust, the state-sponsored persecution and murder of six million Jewish men, women, and children by the Nazi regime and its collaborators. The Nazis who came to power in Germany in the early 30s believed that Germans were in, or the Germans rather, were superior 
the Jewish people were inferior. And because they wanted to create a pure state, Jewish people who were deemed inferior were absolutely slaughtered. Historically, even today, people have experienced oppression because of their skin color, the language they speak, the country they come from, the cultural customs that they embrace. I mean, you name it, anything and everything can be used against a person to benefit another. Abortion, based on the available state-level data, Approximately 876,000 abortions took place in the United States in 2018. It takes a while for all this data to get calculated. That's why oftentimes we have statistics that are a year old or so. More than 60 million legal abortions have occurred in the United States since 1973. It's the snuffing out of image bearers. Think about child trafficking. Did you know the average age for a female to enter the trafficking industry is 15, and it's thought to even be younger than that for a male? It's estimated that the number of children who are at risk for, who have already been pulled into the sex trade, would fill 1,300 school buses. I think about the vast number of godly men and women who have been oppressed, persecuted, and even executed for their faith in Christ. I think about John the Baptist. I think about the Apostle Paul. I mean, Christians have been burned at the stake. They've been drowned, beheaded, starved, hanged, even crucified. In North Korea, it's estimated that 100,000 Christians are imprisoned and tortured at the hands of a ruthless leader. Of the 400,000 Christians in North Korea, one out of four are estimated to be in a prison camp. That's brutal. That's brutal. Jesus certainly knew what it meant to be oppressed, did he not? Isaiah tells us that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers. He was silent and did not open his mouth. I mean, the very spotless lamb of God, the innocent one, was climbed over for the gain of others. Scripture condemns the abuse of power. God consistently reminds his people of the sins of exploitation and oppression. I mean, the, the, the Bible is replete with references. I, I can give you a plethora if you are interested in them later. But the godly are to refrain not only from oppressing others, but to actively seek the justice of those who are, who are oppressed. Justice in the world that we live in, that term... Uh, it's, a, it's a hot button word. Literally, here's what it means. It just means to do right, to act rightly, to act righteously for another person. The Christians, we're called to do that. We can't do it throughout the whole world, but we can do it in our spheres of influence. We can do it among those who are closest to us. I mean, there's a time when we just say, that's wrong. And it's not wrong because I don't like it. It's wrong because the Bible condemns it. The Bible condemns the treating of others poorly for my own selfish gain. Whatever falls under the category of treating others poorly. Just gave you a number of examples there. The Bible condemns that. It condemns it. Why does all this oppression exist? Well, here's the bottom line, brothers and sisters. 
Our failure to love and to treat others rightly or as we ought is a result of our violation of the first commandment. The reason that we don't treat others, your spouse, your children, your coworker, your employee, your neighbor, whoever it is, the reason that we don't treat them as we ought is a result of our violating the first commandment. We cannot love man as we should if we do not first love God as we ought. All of our, his, our, our uh, horizontal dysfunction exists because there is a vertical dysfunction in our hearts. I mean, that, that's really, if, if you sum up Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, that's, that's the nutshell truth and reality. The reason that there is horizontal dysfunction in our relationships is because there is vertical dysfunction with our maker. Shortly after sin entered into the world, we see Cain kill his brother out of jealousy and envy. All the oppression in the world exists because people don't love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and love their neighbor as themselves. Again, friends, let me just repeat and remind you it is impossible to love our neighbor as ourself if we are not first loving God with all of our heart. It won't happen. We need to know that God's heart is moved for the oppressed. And I have asked myself a question, and that question is, is mine? We know that God's heart is moved for the oppressed. The scriptures testify to the fact that God is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. The Lord hears the desire of the afflicted. He'll strengthen their heart. He'll incline his ear to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. I mean, God attends to the needs of those who are pressed down and crushed. Let me say before we move on to point number two here, I, I want to make a few important points of observation and notes of truth and reality, okay? God, God's heart is moved for the oppressed, and so should ours. Having said that, having a heart for the oppressed is not the same, it's not the same thing as embracing critical theory. Okay, let me just get your ears and your attention here for just a few moments, it's possible that all of us are aware of the common vocabulary that is used in our modern-day culture. If you're not aware of the vocabulary, you are probably at least aware of the ideology that the vocabulary defines. Okay? Critical theory is one of the ways that our culture has sought to explain and confront power structures and here's what critical theory does. Critical theory seeks to divide everyone into one of two groups, those who have power and those who do not. Okay? Those are the two groups of people that critical theory as an ideology seeks to separate people into. There's those that have power and those that do not have power. It further asserts, critical theory further asserts, that those who have power always oppress and those who don't have power are always oppressed. And these are the statements 
This is the ideology. The categories of oppressor and oppressed are dependent upon your identity, of things like your ethnicity or your gender or your religion or your immigration status or your income or your, uh, your, your gender identity. We have all these different categories here. And the categories of oppressor and oppressed are dependent upon how many of those categories a person or an individual falls into. Okay? Now, that's, that's the short one, uh, one paragraph statement of critical theory. There's a whole lot more there. Now, in walks in the door intersectionality. If you're not familiar with the vocabulary word, you're probably familiar with the ideology behind this vocabulary word. Intersectionality seeks to measure a person's oppression based on the number of groups that they identify with. So go back to ethnicity, gender, religion, immigration status, income, sexual identity, gender identity. Those are categories, okay? Intersectionality seeks to measure a person's oppression based on the number of those groups that they identify with. And so woke may be a term, uh, that we have read about, uh, heard about in, in the recent days here. But woke is the term that is used to describe someone who isn't oppressed or someone who is much less oppressed by the standards of their identity beginning to rid themselves of their privilege, thus balancing the social scales. There's a lot here. There's a lot here. Here's what you need to know. The Bible does not use cultural distinctions as the source of our identity. The Bible grounds our identity, every single one of us and every single person on the face of the planet. The Bible grounds our identity as human beings and the value that every human being has in the fact that we are image bearers. Not based on other culturally constructed identities. There's one identity, human being, made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28. Okay? Instead of trying to divide us into differing identity groups, the Bible says that we are all equal before God. That is, created equal, equally valuable, equally guilty of sin, equally deserving of punishment, and equally able to find grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. The Bible condemns oppression of any human being. That, that is clear. That the willful trampling over another human being, the Bible condemns that. But the Bible sees oppression as a symptom, not the disease. And because critical theory gets the problem wrong, it also offers a wrong solution. You see, critical theory says that salvation, salvation is gained with social liberation. But the Bible says that salvation is gained by repentance and faith. There's a whole lot there. But I mention that because the word oppression, it's in your Bible. It's all over your Bible. It's a biblical word, but it's been hijacked. It's been hijacked by our culture and infused with non-biblical meaning. Oh, Christian, be careful, be careful, be careful. What you drink is being truth. God's heart is moved for the oppressed, and ours should be too. Having said that, having a heart for the oppressed is not the same thing as embracing 
a worldly ideology like critical theory. We don't identify uh, with critical theory. We don't embrace identity politics. Okay? We want to have a biblical world view that is not informed by the hollow philosophies of this world, but is breathed out by our maker and creator. Okay? Number two and three. These will go relatively quick here. When we strive after selfish gain, we hurt others as well as ourselves. When we strive after selfish gain, we hurt others as well as ourselves. Look back at verse one there. And behold, Solomon says, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, and there was no one to comfort them. The world is a miserable place for many who live without anyone to comfort them without anyone to come alongside of them with any real prospect for change uh, in their circumstances. To comfort doesn't mean primarily to comfort with words, but rather carries the idea of the, the, the promise of help and protection, that I, I'm, I'm coming to your aid. I can't do everything. There's a lot of things I can't do, but, but I'm coming to your aid because you are a, a created being made in the image of, of your creator, Christian or not, I have a love for you that is based on and born out of my love for him. And I want to help you how I can. I can't do everything. There are a lot of things I can't do. But I want to help how I can. It's interesting to note that those characterized by tears lack comfort. Look there. Those who are characterized by tears lack comfort. But notice also that those characterized by power also lack comfort. That's where my point comes. When we strive after selfish gain, we hurt others, we hurt ourselves too. There's neither comfort for the one who is, is in tears, and there's no comfort for the one on whose side there is power. Our calling as believers isn't to trample over others, but rather to be a servant to others and to point them to the ultimate comforter. It's just not me, and it's not you. I can't be the ultimate comforter for a person, but I can certainly point you to the one who is. I can point you to Christ. We don't have to agree with a person's decision-making or lifestyle to have compassion for their soul. I mean, there are lots of life decisions, and there are lots of uh, things that individuals do that I, I, do, I absolutely don't agree with. Not only do I not agree with them, but the Bible condemns some of those actions. But I can still have compassion on a person's soul, even if I don't agree with them. I, I can still seek to comfort a person. Now, when I say comfort a person, I don't mean come alongside and make it sound as if their poor decision-making or their lifestyle, if it's counter-biblical, is okay. But I can still offer comfort to an individual. And the best comfort that I can offer is to point them to the capital C comforter. Well, Solomon looked around at all the evil and all the oppression and all the corruption and all the wickedness. It all seemed uh, that the powerful uh, ha had everything and those, those who were oppressed, they, they lacked everything. And so Solomon comes to this bitter conclusion that it's better off to have not been alive. Write this down, point number three. A world full of striving after selfish gain is difficult to endure. A world of striving after selfish gain is difficult to endure. Look at verses two and three. 
Solomon says, And I thought the dead, who were already dead, more fortunate than the living who were still alive, but better than both, is he who has not yet been, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Now, commentators dicker back and forth here on what they think Solomon means here. I think Solomon is using hyperbole here. I don't think that, that Solomon is advocating the taking of his own life. The idea here is that they are blessed who have not yet looked upon the misery and the destruction that sin brings about in the human heart and the gruesome way that people treat each other. We think along the same lines when we say things like this, it scares me to death to think about bringing a child into this world. We're saying the same thing. It scares me to death to think about introducing a child into this broken world. We think about where the world is going. We think about the set of tracks that it's barreling down. Solomon is simply pointing out the depth of depravity and brokenness in the world. Solomon is mourning the multitudes of tragedies that are the result of sin uh, running rampant in the human heart. As believers, we grieve the brokenness of the world that we live in. You ought to grieve the brokenness of the world that you live in, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. As discouraged as we might be at times when you see the, the headlines and you watch the news and you hear the political commentary and you're standing in the checkout line and you see the magazine cover there, as discouraged as you might be at times, we are not left to despair. We know there is soon coming a day when Jesus Christ will return and he will straighten what is crooked. No wickedness will go unpunished and no righteousness will go unrewarded, friends. When Jesus Christ returns, he will perfect the ledger. He'll perfect it. Let me just say this in closing. Sin is the ultimate oppressor. That's the ultimate oppressor, is sin in the human heart. In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul seems to almost personify sin. Sin is understood as a cosmic tyrant who condemns us to death. The psalmist tells us that we were brought forth or we were born in iniquity and sin. In sin did my mother conceive me. Sin has penetrated and corrupted the whole of a person's being. This includes our body, our mind, our will, and our heart. Sin is pervasive. Sin is the ultimate oppressor. What we need more than anything is to be liberated from the bondage and the tyranny of sin. And there's one who does it perfectly. There's one who does it perfectly. That meets us in our brokenness, arrests our heart, yanks it out of our chest and replaces it with a heart of flesh. And puts his spirit in us and causes us or moves us, Ezekiel 36 says, to walk in his decrees. Friends, the beauty of the text in front of us here is that 2,000 years ago, God gave meaning to every injustice and oppression that has ever existed through the most unjust act of all time. And that most unjust act of all time was the fact that Jesus Christ, the spotless, innocent lamb without defect or blemish, was, was oppressed. He was crucified and killed as a guilty criminal by his oppressors. I hope you're beginning to see as we study the book of Ecclesiastes that for every problem that Solomon raises or points to, that Jesus Christ is the answer. 
I mean, just take last week's study, for instance, in verse 16, where we started the study. Just give me your ears here. Remember, Solomon said that in the place of justice, there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, there was wickedness. But the gospel says that in the place of my wickedness, Jesus Christ stood in his righteousness, that I also might be made righteous. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, God made him. Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for me so that I might become the righteousness of God. I mean, this is incredible, scandalous injustice. God is referred to in this unjust act, as a matter of fact, as the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Jesus is the answer for all the injustice and all the oppression that happens in this world. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus referring to himself says, someone greater than Solomon is here. It's me. Someone greater than Solomon, someone wiser than Solomon is here. When Solomon says these are the problems, Jesus comes and he gives us the answers in the wisdom and in the power of God. This is the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus is the answer. For every problem listed in Ecclesiastes, it points to the gospel. Not only does Christ promise to ultimately right all injustice through the cross one day, we know there's a day coming when the crooked will be made straight, when the, when the, the ledger will be perfected. But Jesus also proves to be the example for every believer in how we should relate to the injustice that takes place in this world. Instead of using the infinite power at his disposal, Jesus laid it down and he served others. He served others. I mean, Jesus said of himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus didn't use his power or his authority to make much of himself. Rather, he used his power and his authority, his spotless life to save and to lift out of the pit those who were oppressed by sin. Sin's the issue. If we would spend as much time attacking sin as we do a plethora of other things, our lives in the church would look markedly different. It's sin. Sin is the enemy. Sin is the issue. And I'm counseling two individuals getting ready to get married. There's a point in pre-marriage counseling where I have them turn their chairs and look each other eyeball to eyeball and repeat the words, you are not my greatest enemy. Sin is my greatest enemy. Because to the degree that you think that each other at some point in your marriage, if you don't think it now, you'll think it later, ask any married person. But to the degree that you think each other is your greatest enemy, you will claw each other to death. Sin is the enemy. Let's focus our attention and our energy on putting it to death. Crucifying the flesh that is within us. Friends, we can't fix every oppression that takes place in the world. You and I, we're only one man or one woman. And not only can you not physically attend to all the oppression that takes place in the world, but God doesn't expect that from you either. Rather, what we are to do is to influence our spheres of influence. To be salt and light there. That we will be the light of the world. That we will be the salt of the earth that drives away decay in our spheres of influence. 
How can we comfort the broken around us? How can we encourage the hurting? How can we offer hope to the hopeless? Friends, I will submit to you that if we look for these types of opportunities, we will never lack favorable occasions to share the glory of the gospel with the lost and the hurting around us. For the glory of Jesus, let's make it so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Challenging stuff here. Sin is the ultimate oppressor. Help us to keep our eyes uh, fixed on you, Jesus, and rooting out every sprout of sin that we see emerging from the soil of the surface of our heart. Help us to do it with ruthless tenacity. We know we can't do it on our own. Apart from you, we can do nothing but empowered by the Holy Spirit, having been made a new creation in Christ, we can mortify the flesh because we've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. I pray that message would resound in all of our relationships. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.